Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is August the 9th, the Tuesday. It's the morning in San Francisco on the west coast of the United States. For regular listeners, you will know that like Mark Zuckerberg, we've been focused on the metaverse recently, on virtual reality. We did a show um, with an author on the metaverse, Matthew Ball, who believes that virtual reality will revolutionize everything. We did that a couple of weeks ago. And then yesterday, I had an interesting uh, interview with David Chalmers. He teaches philosophy at NYU. He has a book out, Reality Plus, Virtual Worlds and the Problem of Philosophy. And as a philosopher uh, with Chalmers, we discussed the idea of simulated reality, the idea that we're living in a, in a vast simulation, a quantum computer simulation. It's just not on our screens. It's everywhere around us. Uh, lots of the tech press believe this is a possibility. Um, and there are many people in Silicon Valley, including some quite distinguished ones who seem to believe that it might be possible. I want to come down to reality today, a different kind of reality, a harder scientific reality, with my guest, Sabine Hossenfelder. She's one of Europe's leading uh, physicists. And more importantly, she's somebody who's able to translate the scientific complexity of physics into the language of everyday uh, readers like you and I. She has a new book out today, Existential Physics, A Scientist's Guide to Life's Biggest Questions. And she's joining us from central Germany, uh, about 100 miles south of, uh, of Frankfurt. Sabine, welcome. Um, what do you make of this philosophical idea that we're living in a simulation? How would physicists approach this problem or issue or perhaps simulation? Well, so I think it's it's a nice philosophical idea, but that's that's as far as it goes. Uh, I think that a lot of people, especially those who you mentioned in the media, make more of it than there really is to it. Um, it's kind of a, you know, an inspirational thought to have. What what if we live in, in a computer simulation? What if there's some programmer who's made everything up and who pulls the strings? Um, so, I mean, it's nice to speculate about, but if you look at how it would actually work, then the physics gets in the way. So if if you really seriously want to argue that you can simulate reality the way that we see it on a computer, you have to figure out how the program would work. And uh, that would basically be a theory of everything, which happens to be the kind of thing that we are concerned with in the foundations of physics. So you can see why, why theoretical physicists are not particularly enamored with this idea. Well, I'm so pleased, Sabine, you're on the show, because it's so nice to have uh, a, a, a commonsensical scientist as opposed to some of these more speculative types. Um, I have to admit that physics was my least favorite subject at school. I always found it incredibly hard. So two simple questions to begin. Firstly, what exactly is physics? And secondly, why do mere mortals like myself find it so hard? I find that unusual. What is it about physics that makes it so 
challenging intellectually for so many people. So I think the, the way that physics is normally defined is one of the natural sciences that is concerned with the inanimate world. So basically it's, it's stuff that doesn't crawl around and that doesn't blow up if you pour it together and to distinguish it from biology and chemistry. Um, I, you know, I have to admit that I also didn't like physics in high school. I thought it was terribly boring. Um, but I suppose maybe the difference between the two of us was that uh, even though I found it boring, I was good at it, so I got kind of stuck on it. I, I think one of the reasons that a lot of people don't like it is that it uses a lot of mathematics and that can make it really, really hard to understand. That's interesting because um, your previous book, Sabine, I want to talk about this new book mostly today, but your previous book suggests that... Um, Math is the, the thing that led physics astray. So what's the, what's the relationship between math and physics? Are they first cousins? Are they mother and child? <laughs> well, I would say they, they live in a very close relationship. Um, Husband and, and wife, Sabine, maybe. Lovers. Yeah, well, you know, I, I wouldn't want to make any statements about the gender in particular. Uh, you know, that that's difficult uh, ground. Uh, but well, maybe husband every, and husband was... or wife and wife then might be better. <laughs> yeah, uh, who knows? You know, we, we can't really ask them. Um, but yeah, I mean, so um, I think progress in those two fields has historically gone hand in hand. You know, every once in a while, there are ideas that have come out of mathematics and uh, they have gone over into physics and have been very, very fruitful. A young Mills theory, for example, that has basically given rise to the standard model of particle physics. And then there are cases where ideas come out of physics and they uh, go over into mathematics. And this has most recently happened uh, with some some of the mathematics that has come out of string theory. So I think it's it's a, a two-way relationship that works quite well. Now, uh, the reason that my book was called Lost in Math is that I, I think a lot of physicists um, have, <laughs> how do I put it best? Uh, they rely too much uh, on the mathematics telling them something about how reality actually works. So there is some mathematics that describes what we observe, and we know this, but it doesn't mean that all mathematics that you can write down describe something that is actually real. And I think this is where things have gone wrong in the foundations of physics. So your book, Lost in Math, was a bestseller. It's been translated into many languages. You have a very popular YouTube channel, Science Without the Gobbledygook. The book you've just published um, out today, Existential Physics, a, science gu a Scientist's Guide to Life's Biggest Questions, is, um, is going to be another big hit, I think, Sabine. What is it about physics and the work of a popular scientist like yours that makes it so compelling? Why do so many people want, uh, to borrow some of your language, science without the gobbledygook? Well, so one thing I should maybe say, since you brought up uh, my channel page, I don't only talk about physics. I also talk about um, other stuff, like the one you see, Boomsters and Doomsters. It's about overpopulation. I have one about the difference between uh, Advil and Tylenol. So, so 
uh, there's a lot of other stuff in there. But uh, I, I'm a physicist by training, so this is why I, naturally I gravitate towards talking yeah, about well, physics. I, I mean, if, if I put out a channel, Science Without the Gobbledygook, no one would watch, Sabine. You've got 514,000 subscribers because you're credible. No one cares what I think about science, but they do care about you because you're a renowned physicist. You, you're, you're part, for example, of the Frankfurt Institute for Advanced uh, Studies. So... So, so why do people have this appetite for your popularizing wisdom? Do you think there is a religious component that people are looking to borrow the title of your new book? Are they looking for you to answer existential questions, which the religious thinkers and the philosophers and the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world don't seem to be able to answer? Well, I, I don't think that they are expecting answers from me, but what I try to do is that I try to explain how much we know and where our knowledge ends. And I try to be, you know, honest about it. And I don't go into big speculations about like, like, for example, we live in a computer simulation, uh, which I think is really not backed up by science. But there, there are some pretty remarkable insights we have learned from a better understanding the foundations of the laws of nature uh, in physics. And, and this is what I talk about. Uh, one of the things that I just recently talked about was this question, like if, if the past still exists and I have one coming up on the, on the multiverse uh, and stuff like this. And I think people are interested in it because it touches on those big questions uh, of our existence. And in contrast to the stuff that, that we learn in physics in school, which is like, uh, you know, how do apples fall from trees and uh, Ohm's law and uh, how do batteries work and that kind of stuff. It concerns their own life, like their relation to the universe. Sabine, maybe we can turn the question on, it, on its head. You suggested that you as a physicist uh, might know where knowledge ends. What is it that we don't know? Yeah, so uh, lots of things that we don't know. <laughs> I think um, physicists like to um, overstate, <clears throat> excuse me, how much we know. Um, one good example is the beginning of the universe. Um, so uh, you've probably heard it's uh, it's a big bang, but there's there's it has been a big bang, I should say, but there have also been other ideas been put forward. For example, it could have been a, a cyclic universe. So um, basically the big bang repeats to make a long story short, uh, or it could have been kind of a collision that created our universe, a collision of higher dimensional membranes, or maybe we came out of a black hole and that black hole might have been a five dimensional black hole. <laughs> and so th there are lots of uh, quite crazy ideas around. And uh, I, I think for a lot of people, this brings up the question, how can it possibly be that physicists have all those very different ideas? Like, why, why can't they figure out which one is the right one? And uh, I think the answer is that this is just outside the realm of science. Um, so it's because the way that our, all our theories work, not just in, in physics, but general in, in, in all areas of science, is that they tell a simple story. And once you start attaching more complicated explanations, like at an earlier time, like there was an earlier phase or there was a, this collision uh, between some higher dimensional things or a black hole or, or, or what have you, you're making a simple story more complicated. 
and it's not something that we're allowed to do in science. And I think this is one of the ways that um, science in general, but physics in particular, is fundamentally limited. What's your view of, of how the universe started? And do you think it's an important or interesting question? Do you think it's a question that in a few hundred years people will even be imagining or thinking about or be interested in? So my answer would be uh, we don't know and quite possibly we'll never know because of this limitation that I was just uh, talking about. There's another way to, to look at this limitation, uh, which is that all the theories that we currently use in the foundations of physics, they work basically the same way. We have something that describes the state of a system and, and it could be uh you know a ball rolling down an inclined plane or it could be the entire universe um so we describe this at one particular moment and then we have an equation that we use to calculate what happens later uh, which is called an evolution law and now um the thing is that um you always need this initial state uh and where do you get it from well you have you just have to postulate it and then you you can uh, look if it agrees with what you have actually observed later and um we do the same thing when we're talking about um the entire universe we we just postulate some initial state for the universe and that's how the universe began so that's what it comes down to. And as long as we um, continue using the same type of theory with this initial state and the evolution law, um, we can never get rid of just postulating some initial state. Sabine, what about the, the God question in my conversation, for example, with David Chalmers? I've always suspected that people interested in simulated reality are just trying to get traditional religion back in the back door, so to speak. Uh, some of the, the fathers, and they tend to be fathers of physics, from Newton to Einstein, uh, they were somewhat religious. Some of them, others were accepting that there may be some truth to religion. What's your take on the, good, the God question when it comes to physics? Can you be a good physicist and still believe in God? Oh, yeah, certainly. Um... I mean, a good, not a good moral, not morally good, but scientifically good. Rigorous. Yeah, I, I, I don't see any problem with that. Do you believe um, in God, Sabine? No. No? Why not? I just don't. I, fi I find it hard to believe any of the stories in the established religions. They, they just don't make any sense to me. So, so, I, what's I behind think it? so there's nothing behind it. From, from your point of view as a physicist, there's nothing behind the curtain or there's nobody behind the curtain. There's nothing there. Well, there's no so, grand um, scheme, if, there's no overall narrative, there's no logic yeah. behind everything. Well, you know, you, you could say that the logic is the physics, right? If physics is logical. Maybe, maybe you need something else, which, which, is not, which is not entirely logical. But, so if you ask me as a scientist, I, I would say I'm agnostic. Uh, it's not that I, I, I'm neither for nor against uh, God or any type of religion, um, really. I, I just don't know. Um, but so if you're asking about my personal life, I don't actually practice uh, any religion. Uh, though to come back to something what you said earlier about the people who work on the simulation hypothesis, I don't think they're really motivated by trying to bring religion back in. Uh, but it's certainly the case that the outcome is, is basically a type of religion. I would agree with that. 
maybe for you, Sabine, and I'm not pointing fingers, maybe, as you say, maybe your religion is a, is a kind of uh, physics. You wrote a piece, actually, uh, in April of this year, Who's Killing Physics? Um, whether maybe Agatha Christie mystery uh, sounds like. Um, you seem to suggest that maybe it's quantum mechanics or, or quantum science. Is physics in crisis at the moment, Sabine? Yes. Uh, and in my defense, I have to say, I didn't pick the title for the piece. And indeed, I, I didn't really know of the title until I saw it online. I think it's the a title... good title, though. I like it. I, I wouldn't, uh, I would, I wouldn't yeah, uh, it's... separate yourself too much. <laughs> it's might be a good, particularly... There might be another book title, by the way. <laughs> uh, and I'll keep this in mind. It's not particularly descriptive. You know, it doesn't really tell you what the thing is about, uh, right? Uh, but yeah, so um, I, I do think that, um, well, maybe saying that physics is in crisis is, is too broad a statement. I, I'm personally concerned with uh, specific areas of physics, which are the foundations of physics that I work in and that my book is about. So the, those are the, the areas where we deal with these really big existential questions, like what, what is time, what is uh, everything made of, uh, where, where, how did you, the universe begin, how, how is it going to end, what is space, uh, is there a theory of everything, that kind of stuff. So, so that's what, what we deal with in the foundations. And we, we do have a lot of uh, open questions about dark matter, dark energy, uh, and, and so on, um, that we haven't really made any progress on for 40, 50 years, uh, depending on how you count. And I think that's a problem. And um, th this is what I wrote about mostly on, in my first book. And uh, this is also what this piece is about. What about quantum mechanics and quantum computers? We hear more and more about it. My understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, quantum physics or quantum science seems to suggest that particles can really be in two places at the same time. There's a, there's a magical quality to it. Is that wrong or is that, over, is that just a vulgarization of, of what quantum technology or quantum mechanics or quantum physics is all about? Yeah, so um, this explanation that in quantum mechanics, particles can be in two places at once, this is just a way to put equations into words. Um, it's to some extent, it's not a bad explanation, but then to another extent, it is a bad explanation in that I would say those particles aren't in space time to begin with. They're in an abstract space that's called a Hilbert space. But then the issue is that this isn't something that you can write in a popular science article. So we fall back onto this explanation with the particles in two places at the same time, or it's in two, two different um, polarization states at the same time, uh, or that kind of thing. It, it's generally a problem um, that you have this need to express abstract mathematical concepts in words but then sometimes the words are just terribly inaccurate and it's more of a problem in, in some areas of physics than in others. But why is quantum or is quantum such a big deal? And if it is, why? Well, um, because really everything is made of 
particles that have quantum properties and all our modern technologies are based on quantum mechanics like the, this computer that we're just uh, talking through it's all uh, semiconductors uh, and that kind of stuff and it's all about electron bands and band gaps and, and it's all quantum mechanics basically um, so it, it's a really big deal and um, quantum computers if they would actually work one day um, as you've certainly heard, um, they might be able to solve specific mathematical problems much, much faster than standard computers can. And again, that's a pretty big deal for stuff like uh, material design, uh, for example, is uh, something that people like to talk about. Um, and I can explain this in more detail, uh, but it's certainly something that, that is uh, worth exploring. Uh, talking about... Uh some of these revolutionary ideas. One of your uh, science channel, your YouTube um, shows was about whether or not the Hyperloop is just hype. Of course, it's one of Elon Musk's crazy ideas, although they always seem crazy, Elon Musk's ideas, until they turn out to be real. Um, is the Hyperloop just, just hype from the point of view of a, a physicist, Sabine? Um, no, I wouldn't say so, but it, it's pretty far in the future. Um, I think I, it just has, um, it, it has a lot of problems. I mean, it's one thing to say tunnel and then you put a train in it and it, it's been done before and you can do it with magnetic levitation and th those things already exist. Uh, but the problem is if you want to, if you want the thing to actually speed up uh, above the sound barrier so you want it to go really really fast which is what the hyper is all about and then there are just a lot of tech technological problems uh, that remain to be solved and uh, but it's not impossible you know maybe maybe they'll they'll get there but it's not that it, it'll work in the next five years or something it's more something like you know 20, 40 years. Maybe if I'm lucky, I'll see it in my lifetime. Yeah, well, 20 or 40 years in Silicon Valley is like another century, but maybe for you <laughs> Europeans, it's slightly different. Um, Sabine, you write a lot about the universe. One of your scientific papers, you're also a very distinguished scientific author, is the Milky Way's rotation curve with superfluid dark matter. I don't want to talk about that, but I do want to talk about extra extraterrestrials. We had A.V. Loeb, uh, the Harvard University, I don't know if he's a physicist or a, a, a cosmologist on the show a couple of years ago. Uh, he has a, a book out, a very controversial book, Extraterrestrial, the first sign of intelligent life beyond Earth. From the point of view of uh, existential physics, do you think it's wise for people like uh, Loeb to be suggesting that we need to explore the universe to find other forms of life? Well, that's a difficult question. Uh, personally, I would say yes, because we, um, uh, you know, as um, humanity as a whole, we have managed to maneuver ourselves ourselves into a really difficult position and uh, maybe finding other intelligent life and asking them some questions about what to do could help us. So personally, I'd be in favor of this, but then, of course, I don't really know. Do you think there is intelligence? I mean, Avi is pretty convinced. I don't know whether he really is convinced, but publicly he's convinced there is life out there. Do you think there is? Yes, I, I do think there's life out there. Um, I guess the question is just 
um, how how advanced is it? Like, are we talking about microbial life, or are we talking about uh, you know stuff that's building spaceships? And are you thinking in that context as a physicist or just as a smart person? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, if you want to call me smart, I'll go with the smart person. Uh, but it's uh, I'd say it's a fairly uninformed opinion. I think it's it's mostly based on my um, impression that physicists tend to underestimate how um, prevalent complexity and chaos is. So physicists have a strong bias to thinking about very simple systems. And then they, if they see something really difficult, like life crawling around on Earth, they're like, oh my God, this must be really, really unlikely. Whereas I think actually complex systems are, are more the norm than the exception. One of the things I find about scientists, Sabine, and I'm not accusing you of this, is they, they tend to think that they're not listened to enough. Um, we had a show recently with Salim Ali, a scientist from the US who believes that we need something he called a science party to confront existential problems like global warming. You're obviously a popularizer of physics and of math. Your new book, Existential Physics, is a scientist's guide to life's biggest questions. Do you get frustrated on the political front as well? Do you think we need a science party, or at least do we need political parties more literate about science? I hope that some of your politicians in Germany or in Europe will read your book. Do you think it will help them? Well, so I, I don't think that uh, my book, which deals with, with questions like uh, whether information uh, it can get destroyed, that kind of thing, is not particularly relevant for policy decisions, uh, at least not at the moment. I mean, God knows, maybe it'll be in a million years, but at least right now, I think it's not the most urgent thing that I would put on uh, the reading list of members of the parliament. Um, but... Um, I mean, it's certainly for a lot of uh, policy questions that we have to uh, address at the moment, like think about stuff like uh, renewable energies, energy storage uh, is something that's very hotly discussed at the moment, but also general um, public health or stuff like this. Um, uh, basic knowledge of science is super, super important. And uh, the way I think that most um, democratic nations deal with it today is that they have uh, advisors, advisory committees that take on those tasks. And uh, it works reasonably well. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure that having a science party is, uh, is a particularly good idea. Um, it, I think it, it had just put off a lot of people. Um, they, they wouldn't really feel well represented like the most successful uh and i'm not just saying it because you're a, a german woman but the most successful politician probably globally in the last 50 years is a german scientist and angela merkel uh so maybe we need more scientists maybe more german female scientists sabine you're going to run for office any political ambitions of your own <laughs> I, I'd be a terrible politician. I actually well, thought that probably about means you'd be I... a good one if you acknowledge you'd be a terrible <laughs> one. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, your book is called uh, Existential Philip, uh, not Phillips, Existential Physics. Um, and of course, when we think of the word existential, we think 
the environment. We've done many, many shows on the environment, the apocalypse seemingly on the horizon, perhaps less on the horizon this week than last week, given that the U.S. Congress has passed a, a, a bill confronting this. But how can physics help us? How can physicists like yourself help us confront the existential crisis of global warming, Sabine? Well, I have to admit, this is a question which I uh, didn't see coming. Um, so the existential in the in the title of my book uh, refers to questions about our existence. Like, uh, as I said, like, what, what, what are we made of? Like, what's matter? What's time? Uh, what is space? Where does the universe come from? Uh, where does it go to? Can the universe think? So those are all you might you might say fairly esoteric questions uh, that don't directly address any policy decisions that we have to make. Um, there may be a few insights that you can take away from my book. Uh, one is um, we're we're ultimately all governed by the same laws of nature, like the entire universe, uh, and uh, we have to respect those laws of nature. You know, there's no we can't just say okay, we we don't like climate change and we'll just um, consider it to be not correct. It's not going to work. You know, it's just the laws of nature don't go away if you stop believing in them. So I mean, this is like a fairly basic thing. Um, but I mean, so for, for me uh, personally, maybe um, one of the um, things that I've taken away from thinking about um, how the brain works with those laws of nature is that I think we hugely overestimate uh, how free we are in our decisions. Because in the end, ultimately, our brains are just very, very sophisticated computing machines, and we work on the input uh, that we get. And so I think we have to be very, very careful with the, the type and, and with the content of information uh, that we consume, because it affects uh, the decisions and the conclusions that we come to. Sabine, we've done many shows on smart machines, on AI. We did one recently with Andrew Hodges about, and, uh, about Alan Turing. Hodges wrote The Enigma, the great book about Turing that got turned into the imitation game. As a physicist, what is your take on the existential questions associated with smart machines and whether they can essentially replace us and perhaps one day even enslave us? Yeah, um, so first of all, I, th I think it's perfectly possible that one day uh, computers in one form or another uh, will be intelligent and will actually be conscious uh, and will have awareness, self-awareness, uh, will have experiences. Uh, I don't think that there's anything particularly special to the human brain. Uh, it's just that uh, by virtue of natural selection, uh, it's at the moment uh, the most advanced thinking apparatus that we know of. But sooner or later, you know, we will manage to build something um, that's better, uh, hopefully. Um, maybe not necessarily out of silicon, but maybe it's kind of a biological uh, synthetic uh, hybrid, uh, that kind of thing. Will they take us over? Uh, I don't think there's any uh, immediate threat. Um, so at, at the end of my book, I, I briefly comment on this. Um, I think one of the issues that, that we'll see um, with artificial intelligence is that they will become uh, increasingly fragile 
and increasingly difficult to reproduce. And I think we, we're seeing at the moment like the beginning of this. And um, it, they, they'll end up being pretty much like, like humans, like the, they'll be unique, um, they'll have their individual problems. You can't just copy them over. Uh, to something else. Uh, there'll be uh, one piece of art at a time, and um, there'll, there'll be, uh, at least at the beginning, they'll require a lot of maintenance. So there's probably some kind of crew that'll have to attend to them uh, and make sure they're, they're not going to die in some sense. Sabine, the subtitle of your book is A Guide to Life's biggest questions. One of the great questions, which we've also been talking about very much on this show is, are human relations with other species? We did a show with Ed Yong. Well, he has a wonderful new book out, uh, An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. Uh, he believes that that forces us humans to become more empathetic to each other and to other species. What, the, what, what does a physicist like you um, how can you help us as humans, our species, make sense of our relations with other animals and perhaps bring out our empathy, which, as Ed has suggested and many other people have come on the show, uh, empathy is the one thing that perhaps we can't teach machines to be. So it's our unique thing. It's what... Um, it's what Toby Walsh, an Australian expert on AI, came on the show last month, uh, describes as our, our, our uh, super skill, our, our, the thing that can't be reproduced. So, um, well, as you say, I'm a physicist, so uh, I don't really have a terrible lot to say about this. Um, but, uh, I mean, one thing that I could may maybe contribute is that um, if you want to understand uh, what uh, animals are experiencing, uh, you need some way to measure this experience and try to translate it into human terms. So if you have animals that can see in other parts of the electromagnetic spectrum that we can't see or they can hear at other frequencies or uh, God knows what, um, you have to be able to measure this and, and somehow convert it into our experience. And it's only then that we can that we can understand, like, uh, do they suffer? How much is their environment disrupted and that kind of thing? So I think physics does have a role to play there in, in making those measurements. Physics certainly has a role to play. I'm not convinced that physics is dying. It's certainly not dying when we have uh, scientists like uh, Sabine Hosselfelder around, who's able to translate its complexity into everyday language. A new book, Existential Physics, A Scientist's Guide to Life's Biggest Questions. I think it's out this week in the US, next week in the UK. It's going to be another bestseller, Sabine. Congratulations on the book. What else are you reading these days? I hope not too many hard scientific manuals and white papers. Do you read novels? Do you watch movies? Um, I very rarely watch movies. I used to watch movies on airplanes, but I haven't been on any uh, long distance rides recently. Um, I was uh, one thing that I recently uh, read was a new book uh, coming out by by Sean Carroll. Um, ah. The biggest ideas in the universe. I think it's the it's supposed to be the first of uh, like three parts or something. 
And um, so it, I guess I'm not really the intended audience. So there's, there's, it's an interesting book in that it's uh, the technical level is between a uh, popular science um, book and a textbook. So, um, you know, if you if someone reads my book and they want to understand those things in a little bit more depth, then that, that's that's a good next step, uh, I would say. So I'm, I'm pr pretty happy to recommend this book. Well, you've certainly convinced me, uh, Sabine, that simulated reality is an invention. You're as real as you get. Thank you so much. Congratulations on the book. And we will talk more about physics, no doubt, Sabine Hustlefelder in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you.